you please turn with me in your Bibles now to Job chapter 17. As we are working our way through the book of Job, we are in chapter 17. This is the second message on this chapter. Hear God's word from Job chapter 17. My spirit is broken, my days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friend to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. But you, come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past, my plans are broken off, the desires of my heart. They make night into day, the light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Have you ever been a victim of injustice? If so, then you know how emotions can run high. There can be the frustration of being mistreated and of wondering if anything can be done about it. You wonder, is the truth going to come out? Are the courts going to come down on the right side? Will I be vindicated? Will my accusers get their due? And when justice is served, when things go right, there is the joy of triumph. Many stories and movies have been made that depict these scenarios. The setting is often a courtroom where the plaintiff and the defendant slug it out. Well, Job longs for justice. His friends tell him that he has sinned, that he needs to stop lying. He needs to stop pretending that he's innocent and just admit his wrongdoing. The losses of family, wealth, and health that have descended upon him are presented as exhibits A, B, and C as part of the airtight case against him. The friends assure Job that the way out of his predicament is to repent, and then all will be forgiven. He can once again be restored to God's favor. Meanwhile, Job denies these accusations. He maintains that he has not done something horribly sinful to make God mad at him. He has told his friends again and again they are wrong. He also has admitted that he's not able to explain why God has come against him. And he certainly cannot ignore the fact that it certainly seems like God hates him. Yet he is sure that the situation is not as his friends have painted it. What has become clear to Job is that only God has the answers. Only God can explain why these things have happened to him. Only God can vindicate him before his friends and prove them wrong. Only God knows what's happening. Only God can set the matter straight. 
Without God intervening, Job is certain that he is soon going to die, that his friends will go away from his funeral triumphant in the sense of feeling that they have been proven right. I don't believe that they will be glad that he died. They aren't that cruel. But they will be reflecting on how they warned Job. And because he didn't listen, he got what he deserved. His death would be taken as proving them right. For if Job was right with God as he claimed, why would God let him die? Job must have thought about these things. And it's frustrating, right, to be misunderstood, and especially if you see no way of the misunderstanding being corrected. In this chapter, in chapter 17, Job is appealing to God for help against his friends who have misunderstood him in a situation and have wrongly accused him of sin. His friends have acted like cruel plaintiffs, and their view is that God is the actual plaintiff against Job, and they are something like prosecuting attorneys who are taking up God's cause on his behalf against Job. And so they see themselves as representatives of God's truth and justice. And while Job can agree with his friends that to all appearance God is against him, and really there's no other alternative in view, and yet Job holds on by faith to the hope that there is somehow, somehow a misunderstanding. And that God is, after all, a loving God in covenant with him. Job, Job's hope is that God will come to his defense, which means then that God will not side with his friends as plaintiffs, but will rather side with him against his friends and serve as his defense attorney. I introduced the last time the idea that we have in verse 2, the use of the Hebrew oath formula, where a person says, if what I say is not true, then may a curse come upon me. So literally, the Hebrew has Job in verse 2 saying, if there be not mockers with me, and Job doesn't finish the oath formula by straight out stating, then let such and such curse come upon me. And uh, we don't know exactly why that is. Perhaps the consequence of a curse for falsehood uh, making an oath and, and, and making a false oath, maybe the, the consequence of that was understood. It didn't need to actually be stated. But the more likely answer is that what Job goes, goes on to say is the explanation of what he has in mind. And what Job goes on to explain are what these mockers are like and why he is willing to bring them to court. And he is so certain about their wrong perspective and about their wrongdoing toward him, that he is willing to be cursed if he is wrong about them. There is no question that his friends are saying troubling things. In fact, he says his eye dwells on their provocation, which is a Hebrew way of saying that the eye of his mind just keeps dwelling on what they have said to him. He, he can't put out of his thoughts the things that they have said. Sometimes People say things to us that bother us, and we keep thinking about it, and it's not necessarily the case that what they are saying is unloving or even wrong or sinful. Perhaps somebody comes to me, and they want to talk to me about a character flaw that I have, and maybe I'm bothered just because I don't want to have to hear that. But in Job's case, he accuses his friends here of being mockers and of provoking him. And this word for mockers occurs in only one other place in Scripture, Isaiah 30, verse 10, where there it is used in reference to false teachers. People are speaking lies to deceive. 
The Hebrew word translated as provocation refers to actions that are contentious, that are disobedient and rebellious. It's a word that is commonly used in the Old Testament um, of sinners who disobey God's commandments. What Job then is claiming here is clear that his friends are speaking lies. He's, he's, He's saying that they are in rebellion against God. He's accusing them of sinning in the things that they have said about him and God. And so Job is essentially saying to God in verse 2, if my friends are not liars in the sinful things that they have said about the cause of my sufferings, I'm willing to be punished for bringing false accusations. It's clear that Job here is using language that takes us to a courtroom. These oaths are often a part of court proceedings. And furthermore, what Job is wanting from God is explained in verse 3. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Laying down a pledge is a legal action. Last time we considered in some detail the meaning and the implications of that request of Job. It's very spiritually rich. And to briefly summarize what is meant by God asking or what is meant by Job asking God to lay down a pledge for him, Job is asking God, who is the judge, to stand up on Job's behalf and take care of the problem that has brought Job to court for judgment in the first place. In other words, Job wants God to defend him against God. He's hoping that the God who has revealed himself as a God of covenant love will step forward and will defend him against the God of justice who has afflicted him. Now, Job admits there is some truth in what his friends have said, namely that God has taken his family, his wealth, and his health from him. But what Job is hoping is that God will be willing to take Job's side in terms of explaining why this has happened. His longing is that God will show himself to be on Job's side as a God who loves him. The covenant God of grace that Job knows is one who promised to send a savior for sinners like him. The covenant God of grace is one who meets the demands of his own justice on behalf of his people. This is the God that Job hopes will show up and will put his friends in their place. Job first has a number of serious accusations that he makes against his friends. And he knows it's not proper to judge people casually. That's why he's begun this section with an oath formula as a way to say to God, if, if my friends are not like the way I'm going to present them now to you, I am willing to face the consequences of bringing false accusations. I'm willing to be judged for my judging. Job is confident he is right about his miserable comforters. So what are Job's plaintive friends like? And uh, here are the reasons why Job is convinced God should not stand with them in a court case. First of all, they lack understanding and wisdom. This is based on what said in verses 4 and in verse 10. In Job 4, uh, verse 4, Job is addressing God, and he says to God about his friends, since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. In verse 10, Job calls upon his friends to keep coming with their arguments and advice concerning him. Now, he doesn't actually want them to continue with the same old arguments. It's clear because he goes on to tell them that if they do, he says, I shall not find a wise man among you. So Job is accusing his friends of lacking understanding and wisdom as it pertains to their assessment of his situation. Wisdom is being able to properly apply God's word to life. 
Wisdom is being able to understand reality and to live accordingly. And Job's friends know all of the established beliefs of the day. They, they know all about what is considered to be wisdom by the majority of the religious leaders. And yet he knows something is missing. Something isn't right about their beliefs. For what they are saying doesn't match with what is happening with Job. And they insist that Job's troubles in life are because he has sinned and God is angry and punishing him. Their solution then that will turn everything around is Job's repentance. And yet Job, as a man who is blameless and upright before God, God himself said that in chapter 2 about Job. We know Job is a man who's been repenting of his sin. God is not angry with Job because of some serious moral failure. And Job knows this and he knows God knows this. And it's God's perfect and complete knowledge, his omniscience, that Job is here latching on to. God is the one who alone can give sinners saving knowledge and true understanding of the world in relation to God and in relation to spiritual realities. And that Job's friends have closed their minds to even considering Job's innocence shows that they lack understanding. This in turn means that God has not revealed the needed understanding to them. It's not that they have no understanding of spiritual things. It's certainly possible, right, for you and me to have knowledge, true knowledge of God and of the way of salvation in Jesus Christ and yet lack understanding in other important spiritual matters. In fact, none of us has perfect understanding of God's truth and the ways of wisdom, which is why your whole life, We are to be students of God's word, reading it, listening to the preaching of the word, and in all of our exposure to the word of God, meditating on it and praying that the Holy Spirit will give us a proper understanding of it. It's also possible that you and I close our hearts to understanding certain parts or aspects of God's revelation in his word because of the remnants of sin that are in us, because of a sinful, rebellious attitude that persists in our hearts. And so even Christians can have hard hearts. And as a result, if that's true in your life, you may experience the chastening of God, doing what Job is saying happened to his friends, that God had closed their hearts to understanding. Not simply that God didn't open their hearts, which were by nature closed to understanding, but here he is saying God has acted in a positive way to close their hearts to understanding, and that is a terrible thing. That's an action of judgment in response to rebellion. And Job's point is that since they have sinfully rejected the truth and have experienced God's hardening of heart, then surely God is not going to side with them. Job's point, Job points out to to God that since he has closed his friends' hearts, surely there's no way he is going to let them triumph. And by triumph here, Job means the victory of being right as plaintiffs who are approved in God's courtroom as bringing the right accusations against Job. Job is hopeful that because God has not given their hearts understanding, they're not going to triumph. It's only logical that if they lack understanding, then their judgments, um, their arguments against Job that are presented in God's courtroom will be proven false and their accusations empty. And so Job's first thing that he wants to point out is his friend's lack of wisdom and understanding. And then second, They are unloving traitors. This is found in verse 5. The problem is not just that his friends have a lack of understanding, that God has closed their hearts to understanding indicates they're not walking with the Lord like they should, that God is displeased with them. 
The accusation is that there's a spirit of rebellion that pervades what they are doing. And Job presents the accusation in the form of a proverb. He says, he who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. There's been a lot of study on this verse, trying to figure out its meaning. There are all kinds of differences of opinion, of interpretation. And my study of the verse has led me to conclude that verse 5 should be translated like this. He who gives his friends for spoil, the eyes of his children shall fail. He who gives his friends for spoil. The idea is giving your friends over to an enemy or to the courts under a false premise, and all for the purpose of personal gain. The resulting punishment, according to this proverb, will be judgment on the traitor's children. To, To have your eyes fail, in the Hebrew that means to experience calamity. It means that you... Don't attain what your eyes are, are, are looking for, typically wealth or prosperity or relief from troubles. You're looking for those things, and when your eyes fail, that means you do not receive those things, you do not get those things. The proverb says that if you're disloyal to your friends, there's going to be calamity for your children. So what was the personal advantage that Job's friends were seeking that was served by their disloyalty to him? It's a good question, right? It obviously wasn't money, but it probably has to do with their reputation as wise religious leaders. This makes sense based on how Job's friends are constantly asserting how wise they are. They're they're so concerned about keeping up an appearance of being wise and having all of the answers that there's no way they are going to admit that with Job they have encountered a unique situation that calls their wisdom into question. If they were to admit Job is right, they would have to admit they don't have all of the answers. They would, they would have to admit that their system of theology is not complete. It's not watertight. They would have to admit that they are wrong. And they would rather sacrifice Job and let him die in misery than to give him hope. The hope that they could offer would be to side with Job and to believe him when he says that he is a repenting believer They would then have to admit that what Job is experiencing is not due to sin, which would require them to admit that they don't fully understand God's ways with his people. Talking about God's ways with his people in the context of the purposes that God has for suffering. Their pride will not let them admit such things. And uh, their refusal to admit they are wrong means that they will be Job's plaintiffs. They have chosen cruelty over loyalty. And Job is hopeful that justice will be served as God sides with him against such injustice. And then third, they are doing nothing to defend him against detractors. Verse 6. Again, Job is referring to what God has done when he says, He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. Now, God has made Job these things only in the sense that God has sovereignly ordained Job's suffering. But that he is a byword, and that he is one before whom men spit, is because of the wrong views that people have about why Job is suffering. That he is a byword means that Job is widely talked about in society. He he is talked about as an example of what happens to sinners who don't repent. He was the talk of the town as the person who was experiencing the judgment of God. That he was one before whom men spit means that people hated him. 
They considered him a rebel against God and thus loathsome and worthy of contempt and disgust. And it wasn't simply that he was disgusting because of the disease that had ravaged his body, which apparently made him very ugly and disgusting. But no, he was considered someone worthy of hate because they were convinced that he must be a horrible person morally and spiritually to be under such judgment. And you see, it's Job's friends who have perpetuated such ideas. In fact, based on what is said in verse 8, they were at the forefront of why he was hated by so many, which leads us to consider yet another characteristic of Job's friends, which Job thinks should prompt God to side with him against them. So verse 8, in that verse, they show themselves to be unloving and ungodly in their stance toward him. It says, oh, the upright are appalled at this, and the innocent man stirs himself up against the godless. So what are the upright appalled about? He says this, the upright are appalled at this. What is the this? Well, Job has just described in the previous verse, verse 7, his physical condition. That his eye has grown dim means he's about dead. And the cause is not primarily physical, but emotional. He says he is about dead because of vexation. He is in turmoil over why he is suffering, especially because people keep telling him he's under God's wrath. That his members are like a shadow is like the expression we use when we say that a person who is dying is but a shadow of what he once was. So Job is withering away. And in verse 8, Job says in response that the upright who see this are appalled and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. So some think that Job here is being sarcastic. The upright, the innocent, refer to his self-righteous friends who are acting appalled at how devastated Job has become. More likely, Job is saying that truly upright people would be appalled at what? At what his friends are doing. Appalled at how his friends, in their response to Job's devastation, is to rub it in. There's no sympathy. There's no mercy. There's no real trying to understand where he's coming from. No love that prompts them to believe the best about him and to try to truly figure out what's happening. The innocent person then is presumably Job, who rouses himself against his godless friends by trying to engage them in debate and to call them to repentance. Is how they are acting toward Job godly and loving? Job thinks the answer is obvious, that anyone who is upright will recognize the truth. Do you recognize that word upright? This is the word that's used in Job 1 verse 1. And in Job 2, verse 3, where we are told that Job is a blameless and upright man. Same word. An upright person is one who obeys God in terms of how he loves his neighbor. So it has to do mostly to do with how one relates to his neighbor. An upright person is a loving person in relation to his neighbor. So consequently here in 17.8, Job is saying that those who know what a godly love for the neighbor looks like, are appalled at the unloving treatment that Job is receiving from his friends. They are not godly people with whom a God of love would side. Another reason why, given by Job for why God should not side with his friends. And then fifth, another reason, they take away Job's hope. Verse 12 says, They make night into day, 
The light, they say, is near to the darkness. I think a more literal translation is helpful. They change the night into day. The light is near in the face of darkness. That's what the Hebrew literally says. They change the night into day. The light is near in the face of darkness. And uh, one interpretation says that Job's friends are setting forth what on the surface sounds like hope. They're telling Job, there's light. It's just around the corner. The clouds have a silver lining if you will just repent. But what if you have been repenting as Job has? Then these words take away hope. If you have a problem and you know that the answer given is not the right answer and there's no other answer in sight, there isn't much room for hope. That's one interpretation, very possible. Another interpretation that essentially leaves Job in the same state of discouragement is, is that Job is talking about the effect that the, that, uh, on him uh, that his thoughts are having as they have been influenced by his friends. Their discouraging words have made his nights like day in the sense that he can't sleep. It's like he's there in bed at night and it's like it might as well be full daylight because he can't sleep. And then just as he is about to finally sleep in the darkness that's headed toward early morning, then the light of day is near and then he can't sleep because it's daytime. And the point is that Job can't sleep because his mind is filled with the despairing words of his friends who have told him that all that has happened to him is his fault God is angry with him. They've given him no hope related to the gospel. They're telling him nothing about God's love and his faithfulness, about how once a sinner is justified by faith, there's no more condemnation for him to ever face from God. There's nothing about God's forgiveness, about God blessing him on the basis of Christ's coming to offer a blood sacrifice for him. In fact, according to their system, Job's earlier prosperity would have meant that he was under the favor of God. But then now is he under God's disfavor? Is that what happens? That believers can be under God's favor and then suddenly become under his disfavor? This is not the covenant God of the Bible who loves his people forever without fail. There's nothing of the gospel here for Job from his friends. And the dilemma is that he knows his friends are wrong and yet he can't stop thinking about what they've said because he wonders if there's truth to it. And the reason for that is because what else is he to think? He doesn't know what else to think. But all Job can hold on to then is the threat of hope that God will be his defendant. Come to his defense. Perhaps God will lay down a pledge for Job within, uh, with himself. Verse 3. Job can't let go of his belief that he is the innocent one of verse 8 and that his friends are the godless ones. Verse 9 shows Job with a spark of faith shining through where he says, Yet the righteous holds to his way. And he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. And so Job is determined to not give up on trying to come up with an answer of where he actually stands with God. And he has not given up on the idea that he is righteous by faith and thus right with God somehow, despite his circumstances. He is experiencing the glorious truth that the more a Christian's faith is tried, the more it fights against all opposition person of faith wants to believe. The person of faith at times struggles to believe. The person of faith insists on believing even when it appears that there is no basis for faith. If you have faith and you are struggling in your faith, you must pray 
like the man whose son was demon-possessed. Remember the man who cried out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And what we find going on, verses 13 through 16, as this chapter comes to a close, is Job setting forth what would happen if he were to give up his faith and just accept what his friends are telling him. He would essentially be resigning himself to the horrors of death without God. To take up the beliefs of his friends would be for him to hope for Sheol, to hope for the grave, which is no hope. Notice verses 13 and following, If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, You are my father, and to the worm, my mother, or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? So the question that we are dealing with from these verses is, is there hope in the grave? Thankfully, we know. We know that because of Jesus Christ, there is hope for those who die trusting in him. Christ has defeated the grave by suffering the penalty of death and rising from the dead. And the result is that death is not a prison for all who trust in him. And the reason for this is that death is not able to be a punishment for sin if Christ has already suffered all of the horrors of death in your stead. The good news that Jesus gives us is that death does not have to be the end of all hope if you simply receive by faith the merits of Christ, the merits of his saving work as your own. Then his victory will be your victory. But for Job, who feels the darkness of God's disfavor, He is concerned that if he is to die, death will only seal him into experiencing separation from God forever. At this point, I want to quote as we come to an end this morning, to quote from Christopher Ashe's commentary, where on page 197, he says these words. He says, and yet even in the gloom, there is a ray of hope. Why else does Job ruminate about what will happen to his hope that there will be in heaven a mediator? The hope that God will speak to God for him. Why keep speaking if there is no hope? Those who really have no hope fall silent in despair. There is a paradox of faith in Job's eloquent expressions of despair. In their very reasonings, there is hope. Job has in his heart both the universal longing for comfort and the believers longing to bring comfort to others. Although he experiences the felt hostility of God, he knows he is innocent. His clear conscience testifies that to his heart, and he cannot believe that a clear conscience will ultimately not be vindicated. So he deduces with the wonderful logic of faith that God will intercede for him before God. Yes, he gazes into the jaws of death itself, and all the voices of the world proclaim to him the death of hope, in his imminent death. But the voice of faith appeals to God to put up a pledge for Job's life. It is in Christ alone that Christian disciples may expect to experience some echo of Job's trials, to feel in our hearts the longing to be comforted and to comfort others with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted, to tremble as we live in a world under the judgment of God and experience in some measure that judgment in our bodies and hearts, to appeal to our divine mediator to speak for us before our divine judge with the appeal of the perfect obedience of the one man who has made us righteous.
an appeal offered from a clear conscience. And when the day comes for us to gaze into the horrible jaws of death, we may know with a confidence greater than Job's that our hope will not die with us and that we will rise with Jesus to life eternal. And so our hope, as it was for Job, is that God will not side with faith-destroying plaintiffs like Job had, but that God will be our defendant through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus, for the payment for sin that was made, which assures us that our suffering in this life is not a matter of suffering for our sin, suffering under your justice. But Father, we thank you that we can know, as Job had only a small grasp, that indeed we are loved always, that we are, as your people who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, never again to come under condemnation. And uh, Father, we, we pray that we would not be in our dealings with others like Job's friends, who are focused more on being right than upon being loving. We pray, Lord, that our focus in life would be upon you, that even when it feels like we are losing hope, that we would recognize that our hope is in Christ. And you have given us reason for hope. We thank you that you have laid down a pledge for us in, the, in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have this defense attorney that you yourself have provided for us in the person of your Son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.